1: Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Nick Tabor, who is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Magazine, The New Republic, The Washington Post, Oxford American, The Paris Review, and many other places. Today, we will be discussing his first book, *Africa Town*, America's Last Slave Ship and the Community It Created. Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Tabor.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the book. But first, I want to go into, let's talk about the story of the Clotilde. Can you, for our listeners, can you explain exactly what this was?
0: Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Um... So I always like to start with a little bit of context. You know, Mobile was not that big of a city now, but in the 1850s, uh, it was was the third largest port city in the United States. Uh, I know,
1: it's my hometown. And now, you know, you think about it and it's like, historically, it was large and it was so important, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's great.
0: Yeah, it was kind of at the geographic center of the cotton trade. Uh, which you know, had extended west along those those Gulf states um, into Alabama, into Mississippi and Louisiana. and And because it's down there at the bottom of the state, um, right along the Gulf Coast, um, it has all these rivers, like five rivers that feed into it um, from from um, higher up in Alabama. It, it was just it was a very logical place for cotton to be shipped to um, from the, the agricultural parts of the state. And then they could be shipped out. It, it could be shipped out along the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So you read these accounts from the 19th century of how there would be ships from like every every European country. You could see their flags blowing in the wind in the um, out there in the harbor. Uh, it was quite an international place back then, um, a little bit more so than it is now. So, um, so uh, the first character in our story here is a a guy named Timothy Mayer, uh, who, you know, I always tell people that he reminds me of of, um, Colonel Thomas Sutpen from uh, Faulkner's novel Absalom, Absalom. He came from uh, Maine, uh, moved down to Mobile when he was a young man, and uh built kind of a, a small business empire for himself. He owned a, a plantation, uh he had a shingle factory and a lumber yard and uh and a shipyard, all um a ways outside of town. They they called it Mayor's his his little domain, they called it Mayor's Hummock, um just like Sutpen had his uh Sutpen's hundred. And um so besides Mayor's business enterprises, he was he was heavily involved in uh, in politics, like not, at, not so much at the electoral level, but um, he, he was a big proponent of the cause of um, trying to reopen the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, it, since 1808, it had been illegal to uh, bring enslaved people over from West Africa. If you wanted to buy them, you had to, had to purchase them from within the United States, usually from, from states like the Carolinas, um, Virginia, Maryland, and uh, so the demand for their labor, for the labor of enslaved people, was so high uh, in the, those years leading up to the Civil War that um, a lot of Southern businessmen started crusading to overturn that that ban and to make it legal to, to bring slave ships over from West Africa once more. Um, Mayor and, and some of these other businessmen also had a vision of this, I feel like this is a forgotten chapter of, of American history. Like they had this vision of the United States annexing parts of Latin America and extending slavery there to, uh, to places where it had been outlawed for a long time. And they pictured the antebellum South being at kind of the center of this empire. And uh mayor in particular imagined mobile being at like the geographic center of that. And uh, so he named his, his one of his ships, the Southern Republic um, as a, as a testament to that vision, um, kind of tells you where, um, you know, what he, what his agenda was. So, you know, there had been a lot of illegal slave ships brought over, uh, over the, over the decades since it had been made illegal and many U S presidents had just pardoned the, the slave dealers, um, but under James Buchanan, uh, in the 1850s, the federal government was saying it was going to crack down on these voyages. And the lore is that Mayer was on uh, the Mobile River one night. Uh, he had some passengers from the north, and they were all in the cabin saying, um, well, with this crackdown, like there's no way that anybody's going to attempt to bring an illegal slave ship over now. Um, like They're going to give him the death penalty. So surely this is going to be the end of it. And, uh, mayor supposedly said, "Oh, contraire. <laughs> he, he supposedly said, I can, I, uh, like I, I'm, I'm telling you, I can bring a, um, a, a, a shipload of enslaved people over and, um, and I'm not going to be prosecuted for it. And they're definitely like, nobody's going to be hung for this. And, uh, in some of the later versions of the, the story, it, it, it it's the, the story, the version, um, that we've received like the lore, is that, is that there was a bet he said, I, you know, I bet whatever amount of money I can do this. Um, in mayor's own version, he doesn't say it was a bet, but, um, anyway, he, he supposedly said he was going to do it. And then, um, in 1860, um, he, he pulled it off. He, he hired a, a, a captain to go over there, um, to, uh, the, the port city of Weta brought 110 men, women, and children, back over to Mobile. Um, It sneaked through Mobile Bay. Uh, A few people were arrested, but the cases were eventually dismissed. As Mayer said, nobody was executed for it. And uh, the Civil War broke out nine months after these people arrived. And um, so it was, was, as far as we know, it was the last uh, slave voyage to the United States.
1: That is just so, you know, when you wrap your mind around everything that you just said, it's just, it's mind-boggling, <laughs> yet it's not, given, you know, the importance of cotton to the South, and especially, you know, Mobile being a port city, but, you know, and Mayor he seemed like quite the character. Um, extremely confident, and he did pull it off, Uh you know, and I think, I guess he was aware that others had gotten away with this, so why not try his luck? And it worked out for him, because as you say, the Civil War broke out, and that was kind of the end of any discussion of this, but I want to talk about the actual slave voyage of the Clotilda itself. Um, Can you speak a little bit for listeners, what was that like?
0: Yeah, I can. Uh, So, the the person who uh, captained the ship, the Clotilda, when it made that voyage was named uh, Bill Foster or William Foster. He was a ship carpenter who came from Nova Scotia, he came from a long line of ship carpenters. And uh, like Mayer, he moved down to Mobile when he was a young man. The southern United States was sort of America's frontier um, at, at that time in the, the 1820s and 30s. And... <clears throat> So uh, so Foster had a long-time relationship with, with Mayer. He had actually built the Clotilda at Mayer's shipyard. There's a theory now that even though the, the Clotilda was built five years before it made this voyage to West Africa, that it was actually built with the illegal slave trade in mind. And I have to say that I'm pretty persuaded of this. I think it's true. Uh, the theory is that it was making these short voyages like to Cuba um, maybe elsewhere in the West Indies and then in the Caribbean and then um, running like smaller numbers of enslaved people up into port cities like new Orleans and um, along the Texas coast. Cause so it made a bunch of voyages in those years to places where we know that, that uh, illegal slave trafficking happened. And sometimes it would have unsigned cargo on the, on the paperwork. And so it was built in a, in a way that made it just perfect for this voyage. It was very fast and sleek, but it also had a huge storage capacity, much larger than, than most, um, like Gulf area schooners, um, that were built in that period. So this was Foster's ship. He had built it. He was also the captain on this voyage. Uh, he sailed with his crew, about a dozen men over to, uh, as I said, the city of Weta, which is in the Gulf of Guinea in the area that the Europeans uh, used to call the slave coast. And uh, he, he had information. It had been in American newspapers that the kingdom of Dahomey was selling quite a lot of enslaved people and uh, Dahomey controlled this this city of Ouida. So Foster was there on land for about 10 days. Um, He purchased, uh ended up being 110 uh men, women and children brought them on his ship uh kept them for the most part in this in this you know cavernous space in this hold where they had no uh like no light could come in they were you know their bodies chafed against the the wooden floor of course they had no place to um urinate, uh, except the places where they were, where they were lying. So, so it, it just, the area just became more and more filthy. It was extremely hot that the, uh, the ship was being rocked violently. And so they were tumbling about, um, surely, you know, many of them got like violently seasick. Uh, after I think it was two weeks into the voyage, Foster brought them up onto the deck, um, like in, in sort of shifts in groups so that they could move their muscles a little bit. And at first they said they, um, they needed help just to walk around. Like they needed people to hold their shoulders and support them because their muscles had become so atrophied. Uh, and they were, these people had, certainly never been on the ocean probably many of them were from inland and probably probably had never seen the ocean before they were they were sold and uh, they were just terrified (laughs) they there was like no way in their understanding of of the world and geography like they didn't really have a way of understanding what was going on or where they were and um And uh, there were violent storms um, (laughs) at a couple points during the way back. There were a couple of moments where Foster was afraid that they were gonna get caught uh, because the British Royal Navy was heavily patrolling uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, But ultimately they did make it back. Uh, They arrived in July of 1860. And the accounts differ a little bit on uh, exactly how they managed to sneak the ship through. Uh, it's I have to say it's unclear to me whether it happened in a single a single day a single night or if it was spread out across two days I, th- I think it might have been two days um, all of these different versions of the story that were written in like the 1890s and the early 1900s they contradict each other on a lot of points and then there are, there are things that just don't don't quite make sense um, but we know that they that they got it through and uh, in the, like, probably, probably in the late evening, they unloaded all these people to, um, another boat and it was mayor had a, a ship called the czar that he had his brother captaining that night unloaded them onto the czar. And then Foster stacked his ship, the Clotilda with firewood, seven cords of firewood, uh, and torched the thing in this, this, uh, bayou this area that was far removed from the city where nobody would see it. He burned it down to the water line. The steam was, uh, was coming out as it sank. And, uh, then the, the bottom of the ship, which was underwater, um, survived intact, but it it sunk to the riverbed. So, um, Foster and a couple of other accomplices were arrested, or at least they were charged with, uh, with just minor offenses, things like failing to register, when they when they came back um to the states uh but the those cases were eventually dismissed because um if, if, as I said nine months after the ship arrived the civil war started and the Alabama didn't see itself as part of the the union anymore so <laughs> those cases were in federal court so of course they got thrown out so in the end um yeah no punishment
1: uh it's it's Once again, mind-boggling as you think about, you have this slave voyage to go get human commodities, as they thought of them, human property, and what the enslaved endured during the transatlantic voyage is, there's no way you can even imagine it you know, what they had to go through, because as you said, they are on a ship and most of them do come from the inland. They, you know, they're, most of them aren't from the cities. They are from the inland. So you can imagine the fear and the anxiety and just the illness that they faced from this whole experience. That's just the mental trauma, not to say the physical or in the case of women the sexual violence that they endured. Um, And this is all before even getting to land um, with the, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to just wrap your mind around what happened. And then, you know, of course, Forrest Foster, you need to cover up the crime that you have committed. So I'm going to burn the ship and pretend this never happened. yet you have these, This group of people from Africa whose life has been completely disrupted, uprooted, and then in some ways the civil war breaks out. So the question becomes you know, like, what's going to happen to them? And, you know, can you speak about like what happens to those hundred and so enslaved Africans who've come over? You know, the question is. What happens even as the Civil War, you know, is breaking out and everything is happening? You know, of course, they're going to be sold and they're going to go to a plantation. But, you know, granted that by that time you have since the Atlantic slave trade is done, you're going to have more what has been called homegrown enslaved African-Americans in the South who were born there. So how do these west africans fit into that
0: yeah they um they were uh all you know all all of them as far as we know were enslaved for five years during the civil war so um they were taken up to plantation uh shortly after the voyage ended and a lot of these people were uh uh, sold off to other buyers in different parts of Alabama. We know that some of them ended up close to Selma. A lot of them, we don't know exactly where they, where they wound up. Um, but a few, at least a few dozen of them stayed in the Mobile area. Um, a, a good number were enslaved by the Mayer family themselves. And uh, so some of them worked on Mayor's Plantation, uh, like full-time. Others, uh, including Kudjo Lewis, who's the one that we, we know the most about, because he he lived for a long time and he he told a lot of stories about his life. Uh, he was on one of Mayer's steamboats, so he would go up and down uh, the river on these these trips to um, like fetch cotton to drop off passengers, and he would have to get off at, at all these uh, all these stops and help load and unload cargo. Um, so and he 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 gave some pretty vivid descriptions of his life on the boat, uh, the way that sometimes he and the others would be expected to dance for the entertainment of white passengers. So five years, they were enslaved. Uh, Their lives on the plantation were (laughs) difficult in a number of ways. Um, In addition to the, the usual hardship and cruelty that they would have faced, there was also uh, a shortage of, of goods and food because of the war there was a, there was a blockade of mobile, um, by, by the union army, or the union Navy rather. And so, uh, like Kucho talked about how they didn't have any, any sugar to sweeten their coffee. They, they tried using molasses, um, but it was, it was gross. Uh, and, uh, and they, they also had trouble getting along with, uh, with, the. Uh, other enslaved people on the plantations who had been born in the United States. Their skin was very dark and they didn't speak good English and they didn't know some cases they didn't really know what was expected of them. They didn't know the like the the protocols that were sort of standard for for dealing with the with the masters. Um, so they they kept alive some of their own traditions. We have these we have like stories about them, um, doing funerals, uh, when somebody in their ranks died during those years, um, they, it seems like they kept to themselves to a large extent, uh, but they were definitely, they were definitely survivors. They were definitely defiant. There's, there's one story about, um, uh, about, I mean, and of course these, these are common in, in literature of, of slavery, but, um, there's, well, in fact, we have two stories about uh, sort of like, I wouldn't exactly say uprisings or rebellions, but on the plantation, but cases where, um, like in one case where an overseer uh, hit one of the women and the men all um, like scared this guy out of his wits, <laughs> the all, all the West African men. And so um, they said that um, none of the overseers ever tried anything like that again. In another case, there was a woman who worked in the mayor's home. Um, she was a cook. Her name was Aunt Polly. And she, she smacked a girl who, one of the West African girls on the head, the woman, the the girl screamed really loud. And all of the men from the out in the fields apparently came rushing in carrying spades and, and rakes and whatever they had. And, um, aunt polly ran up the stairs she was terrified and um uh so one of the one of the american born enslaved people managed to calm him down um and the the cook ended up leaving and um finding work in in mobile instead um so they were they were um they were definitely kind of a class apart they were they it took a long time for them to develop relationships with People born in the U.S.
1: That makes sense because, you know, culturally they are different in some ways. Um, And thankfully, many of them sought to retain their cultural aspects. And, you know, they were resilient and they were strong in the face of the enormous adversity that they were facing during that time. So not only did they survive the middle passage but they had to quickly adjust to a new way of life and they did um and they showed strength and they were protective of women and members of their community so that was that's really great that they were able to accomplish that and so as all of this is going on they've got the backdrop of the civil war um that's going on at the same time um as they're learning how to fit in. So I want to ask you, where does that take us as all of this is happening? So how do we get to Africa town? How is it actually founded and established? Right.
0: Well, uh, in 1865, of course, these people were all emancipated. There's a a story that Kajo tells about uh, going down to the harbor where where uh they were used to they expected to report every day uh, he was planning to get on the boat and nobody was there uh the the downtown area was i guess kind of dead or the, the the well they're sort of one and the same i mean the the town backs up against the um as you know since you're from there the town backs up against the water so um so they wondered what was going on and they saw these union soldiers uh standing there picking berries off of mulberry trees and the soldiers told them you guys are free you don't belong to any anyone anymore and they were like well what do you mean (laughs) like so where 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 do we go then where are we supposed to go and they were like wherever you feel like like there aren't any rules for you anymore i mean there was in a way there were rules but (laughs) they didn't belong to any anyone anymore so they, of course, they they kind of regrouped. Some of the people who um, were not in Mobile apparently made their their way back down, and their their first hope was to go back to West Africa. They, um, I, I found one uh, interview done in I think the early nineteen hundreds where they they actually said that they saved up money for a matter of months working wage jobs, and then approached Bill Foster, the captain, and said, "Will you?" can we pay you to take us back? And he said, oh, this is not, this is like a tiny fraction of what that would cost. Um, Sorry, (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to take you back. There's no way you're going to be able to raise enough money to, to, to pay for that. So that, and, and even if they had been able to make their way back, it would have been difficult for them to find their homes. It's not like they could have taken a map of the continent of west africa and pointed to exactly where they were from so they they were kind of marooned in alabama and the next best thing for them uh, the next best thing to going back was to just buy a bunch of property and pool their wages help each other build homes and establish a little community of their own where they could be sort of left alone Where they could speak their own languages where they could appoint their own leaders uh where they wouldn't be mocked um by by other people for their their west african ways their accents and uh during reconstruction in the 1870s they managed to do this they they were able to purchase a bunch of a bunch of land uh it was all in an area separated from the city by a swamp it was close to where mayor's business operations were and so this was not um, such a desirable part of town, and uh, over time, more um, people who had been born in the United States also came to this area, and we and it, um, there there were some who, who had already lived around there. Um, but it became um, the population became pretty mixed. This little uh, West African village was a distinct part of the area, but. Over time, um, the descendants of the of the West Africans um, married in with people who had been born in the US and uh, and um, the distinction sort of began to blur.
1: <clears throat> it's so amazing that they were able to found like their own community that they, you know, settle this area. Granted, it's not the most desirable area, but they were able to settle it and they were able to create, create something lasting that was their own. So I want to ask you, how did you become involved, um, with Africa town and what was it that you were trying to do?
0: Yeah. Very, very good question. Uh, well, Kaja Lewis survived until the 1920s, uh, Excuse me. Until the 1930s, he was about 95 when he died. He, would, he was 18 when he was brought over, uh, or roughly 18, and uh, so he was the last one in Mobile County who was who was still alive. And he became a subject of quite a lot of interest for um, for journalists at the national level. And in uh, 1927, uh, a young woman named Zora Neale Hurston. Came to, came to interview him at the time. She was a student at Barnard college in, here in New York, she was studying anthropology and she was also um, heavily involved in the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance movement. And uh, so she, as, as an anthropology student, she was, she was asked to come down and interview Kajo and record his whole story um, before it was too late. And uh, then after her first visit, she was asked by a wealthy wealthy white woman in New York uh, to go back and to make a whole book out of it, to interview him at length. And she ended up staying for weeks and, and spent quite a lot of time with Kudjo. And uh, so she wrote this manuscript, but it ended up being shelved for decades. It wasn't published until 2018. Uh, it's called Barracoon. And I bring all that up because it is connected to how I got involved In 2018, uh, in the months leading up to the publication of that book, I I was on staff at New York Magazine. My editor called me into her office one morning and said, hey, uh, this long lost book by by Hurston is coming out and we're going to be publishing an excerpt of it in the magazine. Um, They gave us permission to print the first chapter. So she said, I have this idea I think it would be great if we could figure out what became of the family of Kudjo Lewis, uh, like where are his descendants now? And maybe we could have another little story alongside this one, um, kind of telling the rest of the rest of this story. So see if you can find them. And it took me a couple of weeks uh, to track any of them down because they had kept a low profile intentionally. In the course of doing that, I, I learned about Africatown as it still exists. Um, I learned that, despite being this amazing historical treasure, this is the only community in in the U.S. that was established by people who had personally survived the Middle Passage. This place that was uh, it's a West African community in the United States. Um, d- despite its historical significance, it uh, like there were no, really no monuments to speak of there. Uh, There's, there was a bust of cudgel, but, but there wasn't much more. Uh, there were, there was no museum. Instead, the place was surrounded by heavy industry. Like for decades, there had been two massive paper mills, uh, kind of bookending the community and those had left, but there was a lot of other heavy industry. There's still a lot of pollution in the community. And, um, so when I got on the phone with one of Kajo's descendants, it was this guy named Gary Lumber's, who at the time was living outside of Philadelphia. He told me quite forcefully, as soon as we got on the phone, um, you don't need to be writing about the descendants. You need to be writing about the neighborhood. He, he said, I grew up there in the in the '60s, and it was this this thriving community. It was a great place to grow up. Uh, he said there were like everybody had a big family. There were um, there were good jobs. There was a, a district of independent, uh, mostly black owned businesses. He's, he was like, none of that is there now. The population has dwindled. A lot of the houses are falling apart. Um, you can't buy anything in the neighborhood. And he, he was like, that wasn't not a natural process. So what happened to it? What did they do to it? And, um, I managed to visit the community, uh, that same week, a few days Speak, after speaking to gary i happened to be there on a day when a law firm was uh, had kind of set up shop at one of the churches and they were interviewing all these people about cancer cases in their families as so they were in the process of suing one of the paper mills and uh on, on the basis that their pollution had caused all these illnesses so i spoke with a lot of people who said that uh numerous members of their families had died by died from cancer at young ages. And a lot of these people had survived cancer themselves and their stories were harrowing. I mean, one person told me that, uh, they would often fish in the creeks nearby. Um, it was like a, a you know, cheap way of putting food on the table. Uh, and sometimes, uh, they would bring the fish home and cut them open And they would be black on the inside (laughs) because of all this pollution in the waterways, uh, effluent from the mills. And, and others, others since then have, have told me the same thing. It wasn't just that one guy, the the blackened fish were a real thing. So I was kind of haunted by these stories when I came back to New York and I, 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 I kept thinking for a while, man, I wish I could just move down there and piece together the entire history, like everything, leading up to Barracoon but especially everything since then uh like all of this industrial development and figure out how it how it got to be this way exactly and I thought you know like well I thought well we could say it's racism because like clearly it's not a coincidence that this this community founded by the survivors of the last slave ship became um the place where in in southern Alabama, where the most heavy industry was concentrated, the place that had the highest pollution levels, any part of the region. Uh, clearly, it's not a coincidence. But I also thought that unless I, like, moved down there and and went deep into the deep into the history and and pieced together all of the steps and uh, that led to this, uh, like every decision that kind of um, like figured out how one thing sort of led to another, then, uh, we wouldn't really understand what the process was. I thought if I, if I could do that and we could understand the process in Africatown, then it would explain a lot about how so many communities of color throughout the United States have experienced the same thing. You know, we call it environmental racism. So, uh, I approached some people I had met down there and asked them, what would you think about me doing this? You know, I'm a white journalist. Uh, I've never lived. I had never lived in Alabama before then. Um, I was like, you know, it's, it's not my story. It's yours. What would you think about me doing it? And the response I got almost universally was, look, we need we need all the help we can get. Um, we're trying to bring more attention to this place and, and, and start to uh, bring visitors um, to create a heritage tourism industry. So if you're going to do a responsible job of it, we would love to have you. So, with their encouragement, um, I moved down to Mobile at the end of 2019.
1: And you were able to create this phenomenal book that you did. So, I want to ask you what was it like? How difficult? was the research and writing process for doing all of this. Was it easy to get interviews Were you know, people willing to talk? I know they wanted to shed light on what had happened as, and as you say, they were trying to set up a heritage tourism, were they open and receptive primarily um, to sharing the difficulties that they faced?
0: I was, I was definitely able to get enough or more than enough from, people living in Africa town and people who have since moved away. That's not to say that every person there was eager to talk to a reporter, but, um, enough of them were. And, uh, I mean, I was, I was really taken aback the first time I visited by how, how welcoming people were and how, um, how willing they were to, to, to share their stories. You know, I would not have moved down if I hadn't had that initial experience. Uh, it also helped having, um, support from like the ministers in the community and, and other other people in leadership uh i would say that i had a more difficult time like navigating the white power structure there uh i you know one of my heroes i would say my number one hero in nonfiction writing is is uh, robert Caro, who is of course he wrote a, a thick biography of robert moses the city planner in new york and since then uh, since that came out for decades he's been working on a multi-volume biography of lyndon johnson he always talked in the power broker about how this guy robert moses wouldn't talk to him so he had to create concentric circles around moses and kind of work his way inward and try to find sources closer to moses uh who would who would give him what he needed um i actually felt like it was in a way an inversion of that for me i felt like i was I was starting with a small core of people in Africatown who I knew I could trust, and then I kind of worked my way outward (laughs) from there in concentric circles. Uh, I was afraid that if I told the wrong person the wrong thing, then I might hit a tripwire and that avenues would start to close for me in my reporting. Mobile was a small enough town that um, a lot of people know you know, it's not, maybe not everybody knows everybody, but a lot of people know a lot of people and, uh, those connections are, are thick. And so I wanted to be careful about that. And I was, I was fairly, um, deliberate about how I, yeah, how I went about it. Uh, in the end, um, I, so in particular, I was trying to get information about the descendants of Timothy Mayer the slave, the guy who brought the slave ship over, because they still own a lot of property surrounding Africatown, and over the decades they've leased and sold it to a lot of uh, industrial companies and and made a lot of money that way. And they've always been kind of shrouded in secrecy in a way, especially for people in Africatown, they've, um, like the the mayors are not very public people, and they and um you would just hear the name the mayors you didn't really hear about like individual members of the family there wasn't really a clear sense of of yeah who who the individual members were who was running things there and uh so i did kind of take the inward concentric circles approach with them i i I, uh, i found people who knew them and and were willing to to speak you know often anonymously about um about who they were and what they were like.
1: That makes sense. Mobile is a, it's not huge. It's smaller. And so there are people, you know, especially when you're looking at different circles, it's like people know people um, in one little word. And as you said, that door will close. So um, you were very strategic in your planning, but I want to ask you, so... I want to go back before we get to the environmental racism and the involvement of the industry in that. How did Africatown Town go from this booming, you know, place that was having lots of accomplishments to, you know, in some ways not a failure but just losing its prestige? What happened?
0: Yeah, there were there were a few factors there. Uh, the I wouldn't say it was a process of deindustrialization, but both of the paper mills did close. One one of them still operates a, a like one plant there. I think it's a tissue mill, but but for the most part, they wound down their operations in, in Africatown in the '90s. Um, by 2000, they were both closed, and so so that did mean a lot of jobs going away. Uh, there uh, other factories have replaced those, but they don't necessarily employ as many people. And uh, often the jobs require some, as I understand, they, to, you know, they, you have to have some kind of technical training or expertise that unlike um, what the paper mills used to be where they would hire just anybody they could, <laughs> they just needed as much labor as they could get for a while. Uh, there was also the end of um I don't want to overstate it, but like the, the, to some extent, like the end of housing discrimination, the the fair housing act, uh, that made it possible for people in Africa town to, to buy homes in what had once been the white suburbs. And so a lot of people voluntarily moved away. They were making good money at those mills and they were able to save up enough to, to buy bigger, newer houses. Uh, but some of it was also the, uh like the action of the government in the 1980s they uh they built a highway this is probably the single biggest factor they built a highway through the community and wiped out the business district um they actually dug up part of the cemetery and paved over it uh and a lot of houses i think about a dozen houses that were Um, according to oral history, which I, I trust, (laughs) I think it's accurate. According to the oral history, these houses, uh, had been built by people who were on the Clotilda. So these were amazing historical artifacts, architectural artifacts. They had been, um, built on top of, like there was, there was, they had been added onto because the families needed more space, but the core of these homes was still, uh, the homes that were built by their ancestors and the state, um, built this highway and wiped them all out the state knew what they were doing (laughs) the descendants pleaded with them not to do it the state said look if you want to move these houses at your own expense that's fine but we have a deadline like we've got to start construction by x date and if they're not out of the way then we're bulldozing them and for the most part that was what happened so uh i mean that it's now a you know 55 mile an hour highway carrying hazardous cargo trucks go faster than 55 it goes right through the 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 center of the neighborhood kind of cuts it cut it into two halves um it used to be a walkable uh like it used to be like a used to be a yeah pedestrian friendly business corridor and now it's now it's just a highway so um so any sense of like Physical integrity that it had as a as a bigger neighborhood is
1: was kind of destroyed by that that's that that speaks so many volumes um that you have a highway through the middle of the town that you know that says a lot about so many things, so you know the people of course, as you said, those historical artifacts, those homes they were just bulldozed and gotten rid of and you know the memories. I'm sure for the residents that they had of those. I'm sure that was that was a layer of trauma in and of itself um, that occurred. And so, you know, in some ways, I want to ask you: has, for the most part, has this just what occurred in Africatown? Has it been ignored? Um, you know that all of this was happening it just kind of flew under the radar, you know, what do you, what would you say?
0: I mean, with regard to the stuff that happened in the eighties, like the highway construction, I would say that uh, as much attention as the neighborhood has gotten in recent years, you know, there've been several books. uh, There's a, um, there have been several documentaries, including one that I was involved with. Uh, Descendant, which is on Netflix. Descendant make, does make reference to the highway. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this, I, this was all, I, I had to piece together for myself what happened. The story had never really been recorded anywhere. Uh, more broadly, I would say that one interesting thing about this story is that um, the, the, I feel like there's a, like we might assume that it, that it had been covered up for years and years in fact white people in mobile especially you know timothy mayor were proud of this story for a long time um it was it was sort of celebrated by white mobile for decades and as, as early as the day after the ship arrived there was a news report at, report about it in in papers that ended up being syndicated all over the us and even even in europe and i think that timothy mayor probably tipped the reporter off himself because I don't know how else the journalist would have found out about it. And um I mean I found these news clips from the nineteen sixties, two interviews that one of his grandchildren did with uh with a civil rights newspaper in Mobile, Southern Courier. And um in one of these one of these stories there's a picture of him posing next to a poster of um the Southern Republic, his grandfather's ship. Uh so in those same years, people in Africa town, a lot of them were, were sort of embarrassed about the story. I think, think there was sort of this colonial mentality where they were like association with Africa felt like a shameful thing, and being having such a close connection to it was a felt like a source of shame and embarrassment. So there are people who grew up there who say that they didn't learn about it growing up. Um, but in the '70s, that all kind of turned on its head. Uh, Alex Haley's book Roots came out. The, the miniseries came out on TV and it was insanely popular. And, um, and people started to become interested in, in African-American genealogy. And Africatown started to really champion its own story. And, and it got quite a lot of international press in the 80s. It had these festivals where diplomats from West Africa would come over. Um, Some black celebrities came for these things. Uh, Alex Haley himself was there one year. Um, Jesse Jackson made a bunch of trips down. Uh, And there was a lot of press coverage. But at the same time that all that was happening, the state was was actively destroying the historic neighborhood. And um, and that did not get so much attention. Uh, And then I would say that this chapter has pretty much been forgotten up until now.
1: Wow, that is. Shocking yet not shocking so much. Uh, just in the, as I'm conceptualizing all of that and thinking about home, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to ask you, you know, the impact of the environmental racism that the residents of Africatown, my gosh, you know, cancer, so prevalent. Um, within the community, has there been any, has anything really been done? You know, I know they were going kind of like, as one would say, you know, the Aaron Brockovich route of getting the lawyers and, you know, trying to sue certain parties, but, you know, how are they dealing with all of this just internally with the community? Could you get a sense of how they are handling what has been, you know, the cancer and just, the way in which the Africa town has been destroyed in so many ways.
0: Yeah. um, Well, I would say that they're having more success now than they did in the eighties. I've always been a little bit concerned that, that um, the same kind of arc that we saw back then will play itself out again, where there was all this international attention, but in the end it didn't really lead to much there was no real capital investment there and they had all these plans to build things like a museum, um, visitor center. Uh, and, uh, none of it, none of it ended up happening cause, cause the money didn't come through. Um, there has been some progress on that front. Um, this time around there, uh, the first real museum opened there this year, um, just a few months ago. In fact, it's called the heritage house. And, um, the person most responsible for that is a um, a woman on the County Commission named Merceria Ludgood. She's an attorney and she was, she's a veteran of the civil rights movement in Mobile. Uh, So that's, um, that's huge progress. It's really great to see uh, the first piece of infrastructure for, for this heritage tourism um, project actually being built. Uh, and there's a there are plans for a visitor center to be built um, in, the, in the near future too. There's a contract with a design agency, and I, I think it's going to be great. Uh, and there's um, there's a lot of other activity there. Uh, the um, a, a group um, that's led by people who grew up in Africatown Town just did it. Um, let's see the um, I want to make sure I get their name right. Um, the, um, it's, uh, it's Africatown Heritage. Uh, uh, oh, anyway, um, they, they just did a big cemetery mapping program, um, over the weekend. Uh, there's a lot of effort to sort of organize around the school, the Mobile County Training School, which, which, um, was an amazing institution itself and to, um, to revive the school, uh, the Biden administration, what, one thing they've been pretty good on is, is, um, finding money for environmental justice projects and, and working directly with community groups to make sure that the money gets into the right hands. And it looks as if, uh, these environmental groups that, um, work with Africatown, one of them is called CHESS, another, Africa Africatown specific, there's another one called MiJack Mobile environmental justice action coalition, which um, works on environmental justice issues throughout Mobile County. But again, its, it's roots are kind of an Africa town. Um, looks like they're lined up to potentially receive quite a lot of grant money uh, from the federal government. Um, so there are some things happening. Uh, we're, we are actually seeing some progress this time.
1: I am very, very happy to hear that because I feel like in so many ways that, that it's been overlooked and the people there have been forgotten for the most part and their experiences. So it's nice that to see them actually getting, you know, the credit and the tourism that will come from having these structures in place, um, so that they can share the history of Africatown with others. It's very unique history. And that hopefully they can also get justice for the environmental racism that they have faced and the debilitating impact that has had on the health of the community. So I am definitely rooting for that wholeheartedly. Um, I know, I really want to see good things come from this because they deserve it. they most definitely deserve it. So, I want to ask you: What do you think the legacy is of Africa Down? Uh,
0: well, I think it's you know it's certainly an, a legacy of of, um, of struggle and survival, um, and and of self determination. I mean, it's it's amazing to think about. Um, it's amazing to think about the way they they dealt with the hardships that they, that they faced. Um, like the, it almost sounds cliche to say this, I guess, but, but like, how else can you react <laughs> when you think about them? Like all of the, all the different chapters in, uh, in, in their early lives, like the horrors of first being, being kidnapped, um, by, by another West African country, seeing their, their family members slaughtered, um, being marched um, all the way to, to the coast where they were put in these, these cages. Um, and then surviving that horrific trip across the Atlantic Ocean that I described, and then being enslaved for five years and not having any idea what was going to happen to them. And then, uh, you know, I imagine there was kind of a, a you know, a new kind of terror, <laughs> even as, as it was exhilarating for them to be for them to be freed again at the same time. Um, like they were just, they were just left to their own devices in this strange, unfamiliar land. Uh, the way that they managed to be resourceful and, and make the best of that situation and, and, and create, um, really rich lives for themselves here in the United States. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, what, I mean, it certainly is resilience and and courage and, and, and strength. And, um, I, I don't know how you could look at that and not feel, uh, not feel inspired by it. But also I think about all the, the generations since then, um, the way they, you know, each in their own ways have had to struggle to, uh, to keep this community intact and to, and to preserve the history. Uh, it's, it's, it's like that, that legacy of, of, um, of survival and, and resilience um, doesn't end in the, the 1930s when, when, 19, when Cutcho Lewis died, you see it transmitted um, through another uh, 90 or so years up to the present day through, through his descendants and, and through the other people who lived in Africatown who were not descendants, um, who were just as much a part of that, that community.
1: Yeah, I could say you can definitely, I agree, see the resilience and the courage and the overwhelming adversity that they faced, yet they did not give up, and they persevered, and they kept moving forward. So what do you want readers to take away from the book?
0: Uh, Well, I'd like for them to, (laughs) it depends on who the reader is, I guess, but I often think about how when I was a a conservative teenager, <laughs> um, I felt like um I was felt like yeah, hey, I'm not so sure that we need affirmative action anymore. And I felt like, you know, racism was bad, but mostly it's in the past. And I I, I feel like if I had been exposed to this story back then, especially the way I tried to present it in this book, um, then it, it probably would have changed my whole understanding of of um of racism and the legacy of racism and the way it's still manifest now. Um, not just in people's attitudes, but in things like, like the physical geography of our cities. Uh, so, um, I hope it'll, I hope it'll raise awareness about environmental racism. And, uh, I hope it'll raise awareness about this, this particular community. Um, and people should go visit. I mean, there's a, there's a museum there now <laughs> they're welcoming visitors and, uh, and it's a it's it's um it really is a beautiful place there's a lot there to see it's a good it's a great place to go reflect on um on on some of these questions of history and the legacy of, of racism and, and emancipation
1: I agree thank you so much for joining me today Mr. Tabor. it has been a pleasure discussing Africa town with you and talking about the community and the people who are in it.
0: It's been my pleasure. Um, thanks for, thanks again for having me on.
1: Readers, please go out and pick up a book, pick up a copy, excuse me, of the book, Africa town, America's last slave ship and the community that It created by Nick Tabor. I want to say its well-written, well-written, it is well-researched. It is overall excellent. And I'm not just saying this because I am a native Mobilian. It's a really great book that tells the history of a community that has been ignored or marginalized for so long. And, you know, once you get sucked in as you're reading about the Clotilda and the voyage, but it doesn't stop there. It takes you into the lives of the members of the community and that courage and resilience that they faced in overwhelming odds and that many of the residents still face today. So I urge you, please go out and pick up a copy. You will not regret reading this book.